0: What's up, everyone? This is Gwen. This is JV. This is Chapoy, a.k.a. DJ Shrimp. And you're listening to Millionaire. Millionaire. Millionaire.
1: Interviews. Interviews. You can imagine coming out of college, starting your business out of your best friend's parents' basement, then getting married, then living with your father, making no money. sales numbers actually started to go backwards that was difficult we had numbers we were trying to hit and we weren't hitting them we weren't used to that <laughs> no <laughs> actually I'm a glutton for punishment so when I was 22 I decided you have to sometimes go to a hard place to get to a good place thanks for having me Austin Rob Dubay um, my company is image one We're located just outside the Detroit area in a suburb called Oak Park. We started our business in 1991. And what we do is document lifecycle management. And what that means is we manage all the multifunction printers and multifunction copiers within mid-size to enterprise-size organizations. We also provide them with security software to keep those devices safe and with document workflow software. So they can not print and have more productivity as documents flow throughout their organizations.
2: So are you from Detroit? Like originally, were you born and raised there?
1: I was. I was born and raised just outside of Detroit. Yep. And how old are you today? I'm 48 years old.
2: How's it been like? I heard a lot of stuff about the economy back then that it was yeah. worse there than everything else. Can you just tell us about the time living there?
1: wow what a transformation that i have been a part of since my time here when i was younger in high school and even starting off in business in 1991 going downtown detroit was very much it was not a common occurrence and it was very much destination based so you would go to wherever you're going you would stay in that place and then you would leave now over the last five to eight years Every week I go down there, something new is going on. Something new is being built. There's new businesses. There's such an energy. It's just thrilling. I'm so grateful to be a part of this true resurgence that's taking place.
2: And what's led to that?
1: Well, it's very entrepreneurial. And what happened was there's an entrepreneur by the name of Dan Gilbert who started a company called Quicken Loans. And he made a commitment to move, I think it was around 3,000 employees, which was this whole company at the time, to downtown Detroit. After moving down there, he started to, he's a visionary, he started to see the potential. And he purchased some of the most historic buildings, fixed them up. As his company grew, he moved different areas of the company into these buildings to bring them energy. He gave great incentives for businesses to move downtown. And one thing led to another. He owns, I think, like 80 buildings now. So he really started this resurgence. And of course, all it took was one person who was going all in with it, and the rest started to follow. It's just been an amazing thing to watch.
2: Those people who aren't familiar, I know he owns the Cleveland Cavaliers. Is that correct? Yes, he does. Yeah. I think it may be another sports team or two.
1: No, he just, well, he owns the minor league franchises in Cleveland. Okay. Fathead, you might be familiar with that company. Shinola, he's an investor in. Detroit Venture Partners with Magic Johnson, just to name a few.
2: Yeah, so that's how he's able to own that many buildings. So back to your story. Basically, you own a printing company. How did someone find you? What did they do? Can you just make it as simple as possible? Then we'll reel it back to the beginning.
1: Yeah, we work with CIOs and IT directors. They typically find us through word of mouth, obviously through... Any sort of marketing that we might be doing, imageoneway.com, which is our website, and we don't print for the companies. We actually manage all their print devices, you know, just the the office devices that they have in their offices, you know, located all throughout the country.
2: Has business been growing or slowing down? Because maybe just from further away, you might think that maybe people are getting into more digital space than the printing space.
1: That is so true. And actually print is in about a 3% decline, and I expect that it will continue to decline. So it's really up to us to continue to ebb and flow with where the market takes us, which is why we're in the software business, why we're teaching people and helping implement software solutions within their organizations. And so that side of the business is growing slowly, but it is growing. And I think as the younger generations start to really become more ingrained in these businesses, we're going to see less and less print. So quite frankly, when we look ahead at our 2026 vision, which is eight years from now, I don't know what business we'll be in. I think a component will be printing, but I think we're going to be doing a few other things. And I think it's
2: smart to realize that eventually the writing's going to be on the wall. I appreciate too that you're saying eight years from now that you don't know what's going to happen because some people think they know, <laughs> you know, like it's, <laughs> it's going to be hard. You have to be able to jump to different types of your business tech and keep expanding.
1: That's so true.
2: Was that by coincidence you just kept slowly seeing this? When did you make that transition to say you had to expand to different parts of companies?
1: Well, certainly we have metrics that we track. So we do track the number of pages that are being printed by our clients and we watch for trends. So we've seen that that decline. The industry certainly does studies on it. So we're very much in tune with those best practices and understanding what's going on industry-wide. And then there's a little bit of practicality in our thought process. And I just know how much I don't print personally. And now when you go to meetings, you could just see how things are changing. People used to bring PowerPoint decks. They used to print them all in color. Now people are popping them up on their laptops or their uh, smart devices, putting them up on a screen. It's just changing. For me, I'm just paying attention and I can see where the trends are going just by watching.
2: Is there any interesting trends that we probably wouldn't know about in your industry?
1: Well, I think document workflow most specifically. So this is things like when there's an HR process where there might be, a, it might be a paper intensive process, it starts to become electronic. You might see an accounts payable process that that begins to become electronic. So things of that nature are definitely trending.
2: Why don't we reel back to whenever you started the company? Sure. And why don't you just kind of take it from there?
1: Sure. Well, I'll start actually back in the ninth grade. When my best friend Joel Perlman and I started selling blow pop lollipops out of our locker, and we would literally have kids lined up and down the hallway wanting to buy these blowpops from us. We would buy them by the box. They equated to a nickel each and then we'd resell them for a quarter. And upon reflection, Joel and I always say that was the time when the entrepreneurial bug bit us. So all through high school, all through college, we were doing all types of entrepreneurial ventures. There's certainly some funny stories in there, nothing that was over the top in terms of our success, but we just always enjoyed getting out there, creating something, selling it. So when we were graduating from college, with not many prospects for an exciting job, we decided to go forward and start selling these toner supplies for printers out of our basement. And so that was in 1991. In our first year, we did $6,700 in business. Our second year, we did $40,000. And our third year, we did, I think it was a little over 100000 So let me just tell you, we weren't making any money.
2: <laughs> it was a struggle. Where did y'all get a college?
1: I went to a small liberal arts college called Albion in uh, Michigan, and Joel went to a university called Eastern Michigan University.
2: Did you all get a place together
1: afterwards when you started selling these (laughs) principles? As far as living together? Yeah. (laughs) No, (laughs) actually, I'm a glutton for punishment. So when I was 22, I decided to get married to my college sweetheart. So not only was I starting a business, but I got married and we lived with my father, which was. Horrible. You can imagine coming out of college, starting your business out of your best friend's parents' basement, then getting married, then living with your father, making no money.
2: You're selling basically just print supplies?
1: You got it. Yep.
2: Okay. And how did you get into that from out of college?
1: We read an article in the back of Entrepreneur Magazine. It was about this new cost savings product, remanufactured toner cartridges that would go into these laser printers. And so you could sell them for about half the price of what an original cartridge would cost. And we thought, wow, that seems like a great idea. These cartridges are very expensive. And we would just go door to door in office buildings, giving our cards out, asking for the office manager. That was our primary way of getting started. Funny enough, we really don't sell that product anymore, but that's how we got rolling.
2: Did you not just want to get a normal nine to five coming out, especially being married?
1: No, no, I know. No, I didn't. Why not? I just knew I wasn't made out to work for somebody. I could just feel it. Anytime I had any sort of summer odd job or whatnot, I always thought to myself, I could do this so much better. If I ran this place, this is the way it would go. I was a good employee, but I just knew in my heart I needed to do my own thing. And Joel felt similar. So it worked very well for us.
2: Did you always plan on doing that when you
1: got out of college?
2: Because you're saying as kids that you were selling lollipops, trying to make a buck from there. Did you always have a future where you thought you'd be running a business together?
1: We always talked about it. We dreamed about it. We used to go to a place in Ann Arbor, Michigan called Zingerman's Deli, and we still go there today. It was a source of inspiration for us. They're a simple deli. Of course, they've grown now beyond that. But we would go in that place and they would be delivering a service that was just remarkable. And the food was amazing. And just everything about the whole place was inspiring to us. And we would sit there and we would just watch and we would say to each other, oh, if we ever had a business, it'd be like this. It would have a culture like this. And so we just dream about it. And we had all kinds of nutty ideas yeah. So, and then we read that that little classified ad, and <laughs> we decided that was the idea we were going with. So you may have
0: heard that there are other entrepreneur groups out there that can help you feel a little less lonely, ones like EO, Vistage, or YPO. But why join any of those when you can get all those benefits at a fraction of the price? How? Well, join our Patreon membership. You've heard from some of our members. How much of a steal our Patreon membership is. So, here's some cold hard numbers for you. In year one, with EO, you're going to spend 4900 bucks For Vistage, you're paying $18,810 for your first year. And for YPO, you're shoveling out $7,050 for your very first year. For our gold Patreon membership, you're getting it at less than 30 bucks a month. Let that sink in. Again, our gold membership is less than 30 bucks a month compared to those other guys that cost 4,900 bucks, $18,810, and $7,050. So if you're on the fence, join today before I act like a smart businessman and I raise prices. Just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Did
1: you read it in the deli? We didn't. Okay. No, we didn't. That would have been a good part of the story, though. I liked it. Right.
2: Okay, so we're 22 and you're married, living at home yep. with uh, your wife at your dad's house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, three years in, you're selling 100000 Is he charging you rent or no?
1: No, okay. he's a great dad, yeah, it's just clean up after myself,
2: all right. I mean, a hundred thousand sales doesn't sound like too bad though, but you're saying I guess you're just making very little profit on that,
1: yeah, I remember there was two yeah, there were two partners, Joel and I by then we had moved out of the basement, and you know we were trying to grow the business. there's certainly reinvestment that goes in and decisions that are being made and I think we were trying to build a healthy company that could build up some cash and you know just trying to be conservative. We paid for our cars and our gas money and anything that we could expense that made sense through the company and so it was a struggle at the beginning financially
2: we were twenty five and is Joel also living at his parents' house?
1: He did for a while. He moved out shortly into an apartment with a a roommate.
2: And did your parents at the time try to ever say, you know, or your friends, you know, what are y'all doing after a couple of years? And okay. Tell us (laughs) about that. Yes,
1: constantly. My mom would say, When are you getting a real job? My dad was very supportive and my mom was supportive as well, but she is more conventionally minded. So she would always encourage me to maybe rethink what I was doing there. Always give me all kinds of great advice. Like, hey, did you try calling on that big company XYZ? I drove by their building. Maybe they could be a prospect for you. We just stayed focused. I just knew in my heart I was going to make this work out. Well, then how did it start working out from there? Well, uh, I'll I'll just add one more piece to this is that was when I was 25, my wife and I had our first child, we finally moved out, we got an apartment. And so I was literally 5am in the morning, I was in there getting things ready, doing the billing, doing the receivables, getting everything packaged up, going out, making deliveries, knocking on doors in the afternoon, making sales until six, seven o'clock at night. It was a lot of hustle, a lot of hard work, very fulfilling. And it started to turn a corner. We started to get more time to do sales. We started to get more time to get out there. We started to be more established as a company. People had a greater trust because we had a client base that we had built up. And then that meant we had referrals that these companies considering doing business with us could go to and ask how we were doing. We worked very hard to provide an extraordinary level of service that served us well. So we just kept growing year over year over year. We didn't always have growth over the last 27 years, but rarely have we gone backwards.
2: So what was your actually like take-home pay, would you say, before you had the kid? Because that, that might make me a little nervous.
1: Oh, yeah. It, believe me, I was definitely nervous. I know that we were taking about 50 bucks a week, not including gas money and, you know, maybe meals here and there, you know, grabbing Subway sandwiches or something like that. So yeah, we weren't making any money.
2: And then you're just hustling hard enough till enough people, you kind of turned a corner, but was it one other thing? Did you start selling different products or what helped you increase the revenue?
1: No, I mean, I think what really started to happen was more and more companies were starting to buy these print devices. They became more and more affordable each year. Then they started to realize how expensive these toner cartridges that went into them. and so. A lot of the companies were just looking for a way to save some money. So at the outset, when that was kind of where the industry was for what we do, that was a great business. It was a growth business. That was good timing, I think. About 10 years in, we landed a couple of larger accounts. That was super helpful. But hey, that took 10 years.
2: And at this time, are you still like 50-50 partners?
1: Yep. We always have been. Yep.
2: And let's jump to 10 years in basically, is that when you hit another stage of growth?
1: Yeah, sure. We closed a couple of big accounts. We closed a large bookstore chain. And we closed a large hospital. Those two accounts were very meaningful to us. We had these two larger accounts and then a lot of medium and smaller accounts. But those larger accounts gave us a a lot of confidence to go out and call on similar sized accounts, knowing that we could take care of them. And also knowing that, again, we had a referral source, satisfied customer that these people could call on to say, yes, image one's doing an excellent job. We also experienced growth pains. I always like to mention that. We had no way, no system for how we operated the business. At this point, we had, I don't remember how many team members we had at that time, but enough where we weren't managing it well. Joel and I learned and met a person by the name of Gino Wickman, who created a process called EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. He writes about it in his book, Traction. It's a best-selling book. And I always recommend it to people. And it's really just a process for running your business. That was very impactful for us and we embraced it. And we really started to, what I would say, get a little bit more professional at that point where we really started to put strong processes in place, clear roles and responsibilities and accountability with people. Then things really started to shift. So probably around that time, I'm just guessing, we were hitting in the $4 million range and over the next few years, we built it up to probably around $6 million. In 2004, we sold the business, actually. We won a large account against a public company. They approached us after losing to this little $5 million company or whatever we were at the time. And they were curious about what we had done and you know what our approach was. We got into talks with them. We ended up selling the company. We had a three-year employment contract. We stayed on and ran ImageOne as a wholly owned subsidiary. They had a bunch of executive changeovers. About 18 months into it, a new CEO came in. We sat down with the CEO and he said, I got to tell you, this part of the business is a part of my strategy. Would you guys be interested in buying it back? And we did. We ended up buying it back in 2006.
2: Let's talk a little bit right before that. I know you said, what was the person's name again who wrote that book? Gino Wickman. Okay, Gino Wickman. Yeah. Right, that down. You said you didn't know how many people. Do you have an
1: estimate of how many people were working for you at the time? I'm gonna guess ten to fifteen.
2: Ever since you were 25 up to that point, how old were you?
1: 10 years in, I, I would have been 32.
2: True, that's what I thought. Yeah. Okay, everything had been pretty steady ever since your $100,000 in revenue.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you say steady, I think we had steady growth. Yeah, mm-hmm. we we're, weren't lighting the world on fire, but I guess that depends on what that means to a person. Right.
2: I'm just thinking, I guess he was your best friend, Yeah, Joel. Was, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Did y'all ever have any issues working together
1: during this time? Oh, yeah. All the time. We still do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, tell us about that as well.
1: Sure. Yeah. We're both strong-minded. We're master debaters, and we're both always right. We literally are both right. That makes it very difficult. We see things in different ways. There's a magic to that as well. So we've had to learn to be very aware and present with each other, very patient Be highly communicative. We have what we call same page meetings. We've been doing this for probably 20 years, close to 17 years. We meet every two to four weeks off site for two to three hours. And we just talk about what's going on. How are we feeling? What are we frustrated about? How can we help lift each other up? We review each other's life's goals, personal, professional. Just a lot of communication, very, very important certainly when there's frustrations, which happen often, we meet more regularly. The faster we can get on the same page, the better. It's a lot of hard work. It's time consuming, but it's worth it.
2: Do you have any other tips I was going to ask for maybe working with a close family friend? If you've got any good stories about doing that, because I I haven't heard about that meeting off site for a couple hours, because I could definitely see how that could help if you have tensions building up in the office and need to go somewhere else. It's Any other suggestions or stories?
1: Don't fear conflict. I mean, you have to sometimes go to a hard place to get to a good place. And if you're just aware of that, then you'll know the outcome will be the right outcome. I think what I notice is, especially talking to business partners and people that are in family businesses, they avoid it. They don't want to have the conversation. It's too uncomfortable. They just walk around in separate worlds. And you can't do that. You can't do that and move forward. So you have to address things very quickly. I think having that same page meeting rhythm is great because it's on the calendar. You show up, you come with your list, or even if you didn't have time to make your list, it starts to come out. And that's my biggest piece of feedback for anybody that has partners.
2: Can you give us an example of something
1: that y'all had to go through that was really difficult? Sure. So many. Let me think for a second. I could tell one time we had each year we do a two-day annual planning session. And a number of years ago, we had a great two days. We were everybody on the executive team was on the same page. We were just super focused. We finished a little early, like a couple hours early or an hour early on the second day, feeling great, tired, definitely healthy debate all around, worked through some tough stuff, you know, really set up the year the way it needed to be set up. I run those meetings, so I was just exhausted, but feeling great. And at the end, when we were getting ready to wrap, Joel brought up a topic. And quite frankly, I don't even remember what it was. It was it was that insignificant. But he brought up a topic and said, hey, since we're a little early, you mind if I run something by everybody real quick? The next thing you knew, it turned into this big, frustrating conversation for the two of us. And I realized I'm just in a bad spot. I shouldn't be going down this road, but yet here I am. My ego is getting in the way. I'm not being at my best. I kept at it. And then finally, we just ended the conversation. It didn't get anywhere. We wasted a good hour on it. Everyone left the room and I was sort of organizing all the notes from the meeting. Joel came back about 10 minutes later and he just really laid into me. Uh, wasn't listening and, you know, he feels very passionate about whatever it was and so on and so forth. At that moment, I felt myself, get pretty calm in a funny way. And I just listened. I just let go of all my previous judgments, all my previous thought process, opinions. And I just listened intently to him. In fact, at one point he said, you know, actually you're really irritating me right now because you're just sitting there looking at me, shaking your head and listening. And I said, you know what? I get it. I hear you. And I just want you to know right now I'm just trying to be fully present and listen to every single thing you're saying without prejudgment. We just went through this big discussion and I want to take responsibility and I want to really slow down and open my mind. The frustration didn't end during that conversation, but the next day we got back together and we just tugged it out. So I think the learning lesson for me there, and I've been practicing this for a number of years, is just to slow down you know, and be present and be open truly open, not thinking and solving at the same time that somebody's talking to you, but just trying your best to eliminate all these thoughts of judgments that you have and fully listen because they have something going on in their head that they're very passionate about. And if I'm spending all my time trying to counteract it, it's never going to get anywhere. That's an example that comes to mind
2: basically just to take it in and whatever the person's saying. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that we summarize exactly the learning point there.
1: Yeah. Take it all in with full empathy, understanding that they have a point of view for good reason. And it isn't about who's right. It's about what's right. And so just slow down. And also, how much does this matter to you? I mean, what's getting in the way? Why are you having the debate? We call it debate club. Why are we having the debate? And I have to take a step back and take personal responsibility and say, how much does this one really matter to me? Is my ego getting in the way? Because Joel's like my brother. And from what I know, and I have a brother. And so from what I know of relationships with siblings, now sometimes ego gets in the way that happens with Joel and I, and I need to be real aware of that.
2: I guess you're able to finally work through everything. And yeah. did you talk to a therapist or something to come up with this idea to meet every once in a while to get off site? Or how'd you come up with these concepts to make sure hopefully stuff like this wouldn't happen in the future?
1: That's a great question. We didn't work with a therapist for this particular idea. Actually, Gino Wickman was speaking with us. And we were talking about some of our frustrations and if, did he have any hints? And so he said, Hey, why don't you guys just go off site and meet up and get on the same page? And we just started calling it a same page meeting. But that said us, and I do want to let you know that the two of us, have and will continue to go to therapy and try to dig in and learn more about ourselves, it'll be a lifelong journey for us. And so I do think that the fact that we are working on ourselves personally is a component of that.
2: I think we got some helpful thoughts there. Uh, How about we jump back to when you actually sold the business you were talking about Mm -hmm. in 2006? Yeah. Why don't we talk about the experience of dealing with having your company acquired? Because basically you became a salary employee, right? At that point, once you did sell the business,
1: Yes, that's a great question. So in 2004, in April, they approached us. We started talking and first and foremost, it became extremely stressful. At first, actually, let me back up. At first, it was kind of fun because we were being courted and they were talking about the idea of exiting and all that sort of thing was sort of something you know in the back of my head. And Joel said, that might be kind of an interesting business experience and to cash out a little bit might be nice as well so we started down this road we got deeper and deeper into it and then it kind of became serious we started to have a lot of private conversations within our office which was against our core values we are open and honest we work with integrity humility vulnerability and here we were closed doors all the time having these secretive conversations secretive conference calls moving forward and that caused me just because of my nature of being open and honest it just caused me an awful lot of anxiety and stress we did finally close the deal in December of 04 and we were able to negotiate that all of our team members would keep their jobs and that we would remain on as running Image 1 as a wholly owned subsidiary now, transition to your point about being a salaried employee, our titles were vice president of something I don't even remember. We really wanted to take this thing to another level, and I really believe we could have. But we were dealing with a company that had well over a billion dollars in sales, and they weren't super nimble, over 3,000 employees. And here we were, we were this small five or $6 million company, I think at the time with maybe 25 employees. We were just nothing. We were just this tiny, tiny piece to their entire business. So once the acquisition took place and we were trying to integrate some things, take advantage of specifically their 500 salespeople out in the field and get them selling our product lines, it just was a struggle. So it was frustrating because I'm a personally accountable person. I wanted them to get an ROI. I wanted to be successful. I just, that's how I'm wired. But hey, things like being called on a Tuesday and telling me that I need to be in North Carolina on Thursday without much notice, that just wasn't working for me. I wasn't accustomed to it. I wasn't accustomed to reporting to people other than my team members and customers. And so that was a shift. There were many frustrating conversations along the way where you could just tell we weren't in alignment with our philosophies. You put that all together and it was a tough 18 months. When the new CEO came in and we had the conversation, it was refreshing. He was a very open-minded person. I'll never forget that about him. Older gentleman, he'd been around. He was straight to the point point, very practical. I learned a great lesson from him.
0: I belong to this international organization and you get once a month meeting, we all get together. And I've gotten frustrated because to go in there and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything and we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about. There's no details to it. For me, it's $700 a month and it's hard to justify, you know. Uh, honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings.
2: <laughs> and before you have it back, your work-life balance, because you're talking about they maybe called you on Tuesday, you would be somewhere on a Thursday. How did that switch from what you were working before versus with the new company?
1: Well, you know, not having to be places for the most part on a moment's notice, it was a big shift for us. I could control that a little bit more. And and working for somebody, I wasn't in control anymore. And so that was the big difference.
2: Well, what did they have you do? Why would you have to go on those road trips versus kind of staying with your division of the company?
1: (laughs) Well, in our particular case, they would have conversations and they'd want everybody who somehow touched it in the room. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff. So that was just the way their culture was. If there were 15 people that were involved in a decision, even if my component of it was pretty minor, they'd say, hey, let's get Rob in here too. He might have something to add. So that was just their culture and it didn't work well for Joel and me.
2: How much did you end up selling the company for to the subsidiary? I guess you were...
1: it's not something. Yeah, it's not something we typically talk about. So I'm going to take a slide on that one if it's okay, Austin. But it was in the millions and we did have a payout, which we forgave a couple years worth when we bought the company back. So that was really forgiving those payments was what we got for the company back. So we did receive a significant discount when we got the company back. We were very fortunate.
2: Okay, yeah, because that's what I was going to lead into is like what percentage you sold and how much you're able to get it back if you actually made money on yeah. the transaction doing it that way.
1: Yeah, we did. We were very fortunate, and they wanted to make a quick transaction, and the money was, you know, for them it was nothing. So
2: I guess the economy still got rolling pretty well at that point, correct?
1: It was at that point, yeah. It was is about just a year or two out before it was going to get tough, right? And it did.
2: <laughs> Can you tell us what big company actually acquired you during those two years
1: or eighteen months? It, Yeah. The name of the company is now called Conica Minolta. Okay. I think most people know that.
2: Yeah. After you got out from underneath them, just tell us if we were going to be acquired by a bigger company or we are also going to try to buy ourselves back from a different company. Is there a lesson or two that you can tell us before we move on with the story?
1: I would say make sure you're in alignment and do a lot of due diligence around that. Make sure you take a quick look inside. To, you know, especially if you've been entrepreneurial and you're not accustomed to working for others like I was, that's my experience is just really look deep inside and ask yourself, am I going to be up for this working for other people? Be really clear about what the direction is going to be and how they're going to help. I hear so many stories, especially since I've been through this, where a bigger company acquires a smaller company and then it just kind of, the executives move on to the next thing and you're sort of stuck floundering around trying to make stuff happen and you get lost in the shuffle. And so you I think absolute clarity on what's going to happen next, how do we take this vision and execute on it is super important.
2: After you buy yourselves back, are we talking about beginning in 2006, middle of 2006? It was the
1: middle, yeah, okay. June of 2006
2: did y'all throw a party champagne going everywhere or what
1: (laughs) you know what it's funny we need to celebrate more we did not do that and I think we were just exhausted but one thing we did commit to is just right around that time I'd gotten a book which I highly recommend called small giants companies that choose to be great instead of big doesn't mean they're not big but they choose to be great first very cultural minded companies with purpose with leaders who are servant leaders strong culture, strong finances, meaningful relationships with their customers and involved in the community, making a mark. That book inspired Joel and I, and we took those qualities And we decided that that was moving forward, we were going to be focused on making a really, really unique culture from that point forward. And that's what we've been trying to do every single day, just chipping away at it with our team.
2: I was going to bring that up too, because yeah, I did notice that, at least in Detroit, you've got some awards for great culture, correct?
1: We have. We've been very fortunate. And last year, very proud that we were recognized nationally as one of the top 25 small companies, small giants in America. By Forbes magazine, excuse me.
2: Is there one thing that if we wanted to switch our culture that you could tell us that maybe could help us?
1: Yeah, I think caring about the totality of your team members' lives, not just them coming in and working for you, but you work for them. You are a servant leader. You are nothing without them. You've created the environment for them to come into. You put a lot of hard work and sweat into it, and that's all to be commended. But at the end of the day, I am nothing without my team. Now we have 65 team members and I am humbled to be a part of them. They're amazing. I'm just here to serve them in any way that they need me. So whether that's a life event that they're experiencing or professional or career move that they're looking for, I'm here to support them. And we talk about being lifter uppers and not dragger downers.
2: That makes sense because, yeah, you just a positive energy sense. You can kind of tell that you have it versus mm-hmm. you can already feel negative energy when it's going in. And then I think kind of the same way. Are you raising my energy or lowering it? Because it's not going to stay the same. So it's so true. Let's talk about 2006 upward. Things were going well for a couple of years and then we had a downturn in the economy.
1: Yeah. And when that happened for us, it wasn't too, too bad. Actually, a lot of companies were looking for cost savings. We were able to pick up new clients We were opportunistic in that way to help counteract some of the lack of growth from existing clients. And so we were pretty steady and we weren't growing tremendously, but we weren't going backwards. Now I will jump ahead to 2014 where we started to really recognize actually back in 2013, where print was going and we started to really talk to our customers more about how we could help them reduce their print and we knew this was gonna be a hit for us so we started to do that we felt it was the right thing very much in alignment with our values and so when we moved into 2014 our sales numbers actually started to go backwards that was difficult you know we had a budget we had numbers we were trying to hit and we weren't hitting them we weren't used to that so midway through the year We definitely had to tighten up. we have been through that before, so we knew what to do, but it was a different scenario. We were communicating very strongly with the team. They understood what was going on. One really, really important thing that we did during that year is we instituted open book finance. We started teaching a concept called The Great Game of Business, which is a book which I highly recommend written by Jack Stack, and The Great Game of Business is really all about how to integrate open book finances into your company, teaching your team members, your employees, how to understand an income statement and a balance sheet, having them own line items on income statements, keeping to the budget, knowing the difference that they make. And we went From mid-year, where we were losing money for the first time ever, and this was in 2014, first time ever, we were looking like we were going to lose a small amount of money. We actually turned a profit. And I truly believe that was because people started to understand, take ownership of the finances. And we've been doing that ever since. One of the best things we ever did.
2: How'd you come up with that idea?
1: I met Jack Stack through Bo Burlingham, the author of Small Giants whom I met through my friends over at Zingerman's. So it was just a crazy connection. And Jack kept nudging me over the years to telling me I really should integrate Great Game of Business into my business. And I had all these reasons why it probably wasn't going to be a good idea. Mainly, I was just afraid that showing people the finances wasn't, it just didn't, I don't know, it seemed foreign to me. Finally, it just hit me one day, and certainly the tough year that we were having, I think I, being a vulnerable person, I think I just said, you know what, what do we have to lose here? And this will test us. This will tell us how strong is our team. We're having a tough year. Do people start jumping ship? Well, if that's the case, then how dedicated really were they to the company?
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's what I I was uh, thinking.
1: So I just thought, hey, this is a great way to build the culture stronger and integrate people into the things that I'm looking at day in and day out. I mean, everybody's just a person, just like me. And if I don't give them the information they need to make the right decisions, whose fault is that? That's mine. It was a great decision, and that's how it came about.
2: You actually show them the actual numbers for your company and not just basics, because at first it might sound like you're just telling them the basics about like finance or whatever, but you were showing them the actual numbers, that revenue and income that y'all were producing or I guess not producing.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Right at that time, not producing. Exactly. Net income, top line sales, cost of goods sold, our gross profit percentage, and then getting into the line items. So yeah, they, they were learning every component of it.
2: Were you just talking to the managers there? I mean, were you teaching it? Did you have someone else come in and teach it? How would we implement that?
1: Yeah, they have coaches, but we couldn't afford them. So I literally, I read the book. I went onto their website. There were quite a, a good number of resources and I started teaching it myself. And I just went in front of the team and I said, look, I'm no financial guru. I know how to read an income statement in a balance sheet, but I've never had to teach it. And I'm going to make a ton of mistakes, but stick with me on this. Ask me tough questions, which they did. And I'll find out the answers. And we'll just, this is going to be a journey. It's going to be one step at a time. And I just took it slow. Like we've done with any of these foundational tools like EOS, et cetera. I just have a knack for being able to see the big picture, but also realizing it's not going to be perfect right out of the gates. Just take a little bit at a time. Don't get overwhelmed.
2: And how much did you charge Image
1: One to do this? <laughs> it was out of the goodness of my heart for sure. <laughs> hey, there you
2: go. I think it's all right. Uh, you brought up a good point. I guess Jack Stack kept telling you to do it, but I don't think there's really any reason to change anything up until that point if everything was still going smooth. Once you finally hit a roadblock, at least you weren't still doing the same thing. You have to do something else to try to figure out what you can do to turn a profit.
1: That's a great point. Although I will say, in retrospect, had i known the power of this because we've had really strong net profit results since i mean they've been our best years since everywhere from the top line and everything in between i just say i was really missing the boat because i missed years of what could have been much stronger than they were already so yeah you know i think i'm glad i was aware and i'm glad i was willing to try something different so good but in retrospect, and to any of your listeners that have a business, I highly recommend empowering your team members if you're super serious about taking your business to another level. It's very powerful.
2: And I can believe you on that as well. I guess i just push back, it's kind of, that's such a big step, like it's so different from most companies today, even like as futuristic, I guess they're forward thinking as a lot of companies act like they are with the culture and whatnot. I guess it's kind of scary as an owner to show them what's behind the curtain as far as. If they're going to think that you're too greedy or making too much money, if they can see actually how much money you're taking in, et cetera.
1: Yeah, those are great points. They're all the same ones I shared with Jack. And Jack would right. Jack would laugh at me and he said, first of all, Rob, they think you're taking way more money than you are. <laughs> okay,
2: okay.
1: Trust me. And they think you're making more money as a company than you are. So when things like compensation reviews come up and they're, they're upset that they didn't get as much as they want because they think you're taking home millions and millions of dollars, when they see the reality... The whole mind shifts. So the information is powerful. Oh, and by the way, when times are strong, you tie them into the bottom line. So it's called the big game bonus program. When you're successful, they're tied into it.
2: Was there anything else that you brought up? Because I think those are important pushbacks that he said. Like, I could see that. Yeah, they probably do think you're making way more money and that the company's making way more money than they actually are.
1: Yeah. The other thing I would always say to him is, wow, yeah, but if times get tough, you know, they're going to be nervous and I, I don't want them to stress out and in this and that and the other thing. And, and he snickered at me equally and just said, hey, first of all, if times are tough, they're going to find out at some point because one day you're going to have to go in front of them and say, we have to do some tough cuts here. And it might be in the form of, jobs. And then it's a big surprise. So at least this way, they've had the opportunity to see where things are at, try to make a difference and likely they will. But if they don't, they knew exactly what was going on the whole time. And for me, that's just treating people like adults.
2: Those are all great points there. So I appreciate you. Yeah. Yeah. You push back on everything that I said there. I'm like, oh, now all three of those kind of things (laughs) make sense. All right. I guess where do we take it from there until where you are today? Anything else we can learn?
1: Yeah. I think one of the things I've been sharing lately has been a journey I've been on since 2004 when I sold the business. Now, growing up, I was a very anxious kid, very stressed out, had health issues, had some family challenges that translated into my adult life. And when I sold the business, highly anxious, I kind of got to a breaking point and I've tried to find different ways that could help me with the stress and managing the stress and anxiety. And I actually started meditating on a regular basis. I started off slow, I sat in a chair and breathed in and breathed out for a couple of minutes one day. And I thought, wow, that actually made me feel a little bit better, didn't make my problems go away, but I just felt a little bit calmer. So I started meditating. I found that over the last 13 years, I've become a much more present and aware leader am with my team members fully when we're together. And I believe that that's translated into a stronger culture. I believe it's translated into much of our success with the awards and with the retention, just truly caring about the team. And so I'm just encouraging being an entrepreneur my whole life and knowing what it's like we're all wired different ways, but we have an awful lot of anxiety. I've, I've been part of an organization called Entrepreneur's Organization, EO, for 20 years. And as long as I've been there, I've learned there's one common thread. We're all stressed and we're all juggling a lot of balls in the air. And that includes our family and our, our businesses and you know everything else around us. And This is a great way to kind of calm the mind. And so I ended up writing a book about it. It's called Do Nothing. The most rewarding leadership challenge you'll ever take. It'll be live on Amazon. And so you can check that out at my website, donothingbook.com and find out more information about the journey and how it can be meaningful to you as a leader.
2: When you talk about anxiety and what does that mean to you and what did you have to deal with?
1: Well, it manifested itself in many ways. It might have manifested itself in having unreasonable conversations and energy that people just felt when they were around me that was, you know, a little maybe high strung. And that never feels good to team members or family members or anybody for that matter. It manifests itself in lack of sleep, health issues, like I had eczema, my skin would get all rash. I'd have all kinds of rashes all over my skin. So those were the things that happened with me. But, you know, everybody has their own versions of that. I actually put together a silent leadership retreat. And I have leaders from all over the country that are coming to Colorado for four days to do a silent retreat, just leaders and entrepreneurs.
2: And do you want us to just plug your book a little bit more about what we could learn from picking it up before we get off the call?
1: Absolutely. So what you're going to learn is how to take on a meditation practice, how to be comfortable doing nothing. We're always trying to be so productive. So this is a time of the day you'll do nothing. You'll learn about stories of many, many highly successful people that have a meditation practice that would probably surprise you. There are so many leaders out there nowadays that use this and credit it as one of the things that's helped them to be in the position that they are in with their companies or as entrepreneurs. And so you'll read some of their stories, had the opportunity to interview a good number of them. You'll learn about the benefits of a retreat and what that could be like and why turning off all the electronics and emails and communications and writing and reading and getting all that stimulation that, that comes out of social media, everything kind of letting that all go. And if this isn't a vacation where you go sit on the beach where you're still active, this is where you truly turn it all off and you'll find out why that's beneficial to do for two or three days at a time and how that's really a gift, not just to yourself, but to the people around you. I don't have a scalable internet business. So your podcast, your guests that you interview resonates a lot more. And uh, You know, you interview them very well and uh, you're quite consistent. So, you know, I, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to.
2: Well, like I said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai?
1: Yeah. So it's the capital of the UAE.
2: He actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with.
1: Yeah, oh, that'd be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him.
2: So I helped, finally. Yeah, just talking to you has uh, helped uh, Help get my thinking going. And yeah, I you, know, you brought a point about all the notifications you get on your phone. You never get your mind to turn off. I think that was a really important thing to, to bring up there. Yep. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming on the call and sharing your story. Is there anything else that you might want to leave the listeners with today who are listening?
1: Sure. I have a weekly blog on Forbes, so you can check that out. Also on Thrive Global, every two weeks I write a blog, so you can check that out as well. I do speaking on the do nothing movement. So I'm happy to entertain any questions about that. And I love your podcast. I'm really grateful that you had me on Austin. I enjoyed talking to you, not only today, but when we spoke previously, thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah, no, and I appreciate you writing the book and like coming at it from a different angle with the do nothing because I wasn't even familiar with that. And then I was starting to read it right as we started the background on it. But I think a lot of people, it's hard to do nothing. Especially as an entrepreneur, you feel like you have to do something all the time. So
1: <laughs> that is think, so true.
2: I think that's a great title. If someone wants to contact you and say thank you or get any more information on I guess maybe the retreat because I think that's pretty interesting as well. Where would they go?
1: Sure, they can go to do nothing com and they can find all the information on the retreat. They can contact me from the website. They can contact me on any of the social, which has on the website, you'll have the links there for LinkedIn or Twitter Facebook, Instagram. You can go there and check all those out. So very easy, very accessible, happy to respond to everybody.
2: Yeah, if someone wanted to reach you personally, do they go to that website as well? Yep, yep,
1: we'll get it for sure. And I'll reach out personally. All right, well, thank you, Rob, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks again for having me.
0: Are you looking for more? Product-based interviews? Well, don't worry, mother effer. I got you. Here's five awesome suggestions just for you. Try episode 135 with Jim Kalb of Optifuse or an old favorite, episode 24 with Starfire Direct. Another one, try episode 127, that's 127, with Doug Booten, the founder of Halo Top Ice Cream which I'm sure you've seen in your local supermarket. Another oldie but goodie, episode 34 with Don DiCostenza of pedigo Electric Bikes. And last but not least, the touching story in episode 98 with Anne Head. And hey, while you're exploring our awesome back catalog of episodes, why don't you consider becoming a Patreon member? We've got secret Patreon episodes in the product industry, like Patreon episode number 29, where I interviewed the founder of Fatheads, or Patreon episode three, where I talk with Rick Martinez about succeeding in the cannabis industry. Just check your notes below on how to get these secret episodes right now.